Hello, my name is Lily Austin, and I'll be having a conversation with Emmett Matier. This interview is being conducted jointly for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Libraries Community Oral History Project and for LGBT Oral Histories of Central Iowa, a project of Grinnell College. The New York City Trans Oral History Project is a project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people and LGBT Oral Histories of Central Iowa is an oral history project documenting the experiences of LGBTQ-identified people in the state of Iowa. It is July 14th, 2020, and due to social distancing as a result of COVID-19, this interview is being conducted remotely over Zoom. So, Emmett, how has your week been? Uh, pretty stressful. I'm uh, things are, I'm in New York right now, I'm in my apartment, and um, things are opening up, so I'm trying to apply for jobs right now, um, and I also just finished my MFA, and we're having issues um, with our school, like, finishing our degree requirements uh, correctively, so we're having issues with administration and correspondence between students and faculty and administration, so lots going on. <laughs> Yeah. So sorry. It's okay. Okay. So when and where were you born? I was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa in 1993. And what was your family like? Um, I grew up in a middle class family. Uh, my mom was a second grade teacher. Uh, she went back to uh, work full time when I started first grade and was working part-time um, while my brothers and I were little. And my dad uh, operates a water conditioning service. So he just does stuff um, to make water safe and healthy for consumption and bathing and washing. Um, and I grew up with two older brothers who are both cis and they are both um, eight and six years older than me. So I was um, the baby and I was the girl. Um, yeah, my family was like a pretty, I feel like they were a pretty like normal middle-class Midwestern family, um, like Protestant values and work ethic and middle-class values, but also, um, not the most functional. Um, and yeah, my parents just were dealing with not having very healthy um, childhoods of their own. So it wasn't always like a really great time in my family when I was young. Yeah. But no major complaints, no major issues, like a pretty standard family life. Can you remember like your earliest memory? My earliest memory was we moved in, my parents built our house that I grew up in um, and we moved when I was about three or four. But my earliest memories was my mom and my brother putting me down to nap in a crib and I was angry and I smashed my bottle of milk against the headboard. Or I remember crawling on the, and crawling on the floor upstairs and saying hi to my dad on the porch. And then I also remember asking for my mom, my, asking my mom for my pacifier in the kitchen and then I also remember in our old house before, before I was three, I remember my brothers, my brother had a microscope and I remember our cat was sitting in the tree in our backyard. And I remember my brother took the pliers, like took little needle, like tweezers to pull a dingleberry off my cat's butthole and put it under the microscope for us all to look at. 
<laughs> so those are my earliest memories. Uh, what are your brothers like? Um, they're pretty decent. My brothers, um, growing up, like I wasn't super close to them because there was an age difference. Um, and I was the baby. They definitely like teased me a lot, but they were still like very protective. Um, we're not very, we don't have like very close relationships now, but we do get along pretty well. Um, and they both live, one of them lives in Minneapolis and the other lives in Montana, Bozeman, Montana. Um, and they're both married and homeowners. Yeah, pretty normal. <laughs> so what was your mom like? Um, my mom was very interesting. My mom like really was very loving. Um, my mom didn't have a very, my mom had a pretty terrible childhood. Um, her dad died when she was six. Um, and it was like a quote unquote farm accident, but like my dad and like my dad's parents suspected was suicide. Um, and so she was six and she was the oldest and her, she had a two year old brother and a newborn when her, when her dad died. And so um, she was raised by a single mother um, who was pretty uh, depressive, like manic depressive. Um, my mom had to grow up and take care of her brothers when she was six. And her mom was pretty like very awful to her, very like verbally abusive. Um, and so like when my mom, when I was growing up, she, since I was like the baby and I was the only girl, she put like a lot into our relationship as kind of like a retribution for her childhood saying that like all she wanted was a daughter to take care of. And so that was like a lot of pressure. Um, and my mom like really did her best, but like, I don't know. It's like from a different age where like people don't really want to face their issues healthily. Like they don't want help to face their issues and they don't do therapy. So they don't really know how to, like fully heal from their trauma. And so, yeah, there was like definitely, like there's a lot of like difficult things between my mom and I, like even when I was a child. Um, I mean, like overall she was very loving, but like she, when I was in third grade, she started teaching second grade at my elementary school. And I remember like being on the playground and like the kids being like, oh, Mrs. Natir is so nice. And I was just like, oh, she's nice to you. But I mean, I don't know. She like tries her best and like, I don't hate her. And I like, I remember one time when I was like a teenager, my mom was like really being very awful towards me and like saying some things that were like making me cry. And um, I remember my grandma on my dad's side, my paternal grandma, like told me like, just like to have sympathy for my mom and like telling me how like, she and my grandpa used to see my mom's mom say like terrible things to her in front of like everybody in the family. Um, and I remember my, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother saying really awful things to my mom in front of me when I was a little kid. So, you know, I think like part of like growing up is like not to be like hateful and spiteful towards your parents for the things that they did wrong, but just like have more compassion and empathy and just like patience with them. So, yeah. 
do you remember like when you came to terms with that or um i think it was well i came out to my mom initially as like a lesbian when i was 18 um it was like right after i went to college like a, like a month or two after i went to college um I was visiting my mom and I came out to her and she had like a pretty terrible reaction. And like when I was a teenager, she would kind of make like snide comments kind of thinking that she was like suspecting that I was gay or bisexual and like saying she wasn't like very approving of it. Um, so all throughout, you know, my college years and the time I spent still in Iowa after college, my relationship with my mom was really strained. Um, and I think, like, a lot of that is because she just, like, put so much of her own, like, my mom used to, like, tell me when I was a kid, she would, like, teach me, like, how to cook, how to sew, like, domestic, like, domestic duties and tasks, but it never was quite framed as, like, you know, this is how you are, really, like, you function and survive on your own. It was always, like, framed as, like, you're going to find a husband this way. Um, and so, like, when I came out as gay, um, to my mom, it was, um, not received well like I couldn't be around her ever it was like ever um and but then it wasn't until I like moved away to New York that my mom wasn't able to see me as much anymore and so we like have started to like repair our relationship since then um but it's never going to be like a super close relationship I'm still like not very open with my mom about my life and I don't think I ever will be. Yeah. How did you come out to your mom? Um, so I should have known I was queer, homosexual, gay, trans, whatever, when I was young, like very young. There was like all the signs when I was young, but I was just very ignorant and ignored them. And so um, college, I went to college and there was like this girl that moved across the hall from me and she was like a lesbian and out as a lesbian and obviously a lesbian. And then like two days into college, I realized I had a crush on the girl across the hall. And I was like, Oh, I'm gay. Like, even though like I, I should have known, I should have realized that in, in high school, but whatever. Um, and so, like, I didn't really see it as an issue of, like, trying to hide it. Because, like, all my friends I made, like, my freshman year of college are all gay, too. And so, like, I I think, like, a month or two after... I went to University of Iowa for college. So I think, like, a few weeks after um, my I started school, my parents wanted me to come visit for the weekend. So my dad drove down, and he picked me up. And I got in the car from Birch Hall and then we got on I-80. And like right when we got onto the exit of I-80, like that's a 10 minute drive from when my dad picked me up. Like my dad like picked me up from the dorm and he saw me get in the car. He was like, wow, you look great. You look so happy. Like, you know, I was just like this fun, bubbly little freshman college student having the life. Um, and then 10 minutes later we get on the highway and I'm like, I'm gay. And he's like, oh, okay. And he didn't quite know what to do about it. And so then we went back to my parents' house. Um, we got back to their house and my mom was in the laundry room doing laundry. And I was like, I guess I'll tell my mom too. And I was like, I'm gay. And she was like, no, you're not. 
you're just saying this because like it's fashionable and you're like this is like what your friends are doing and you're just like doing this because it's like you're not really gay you just think you are and like she like before that she made a comment like she, like there's like pictures this is back when people are still on Facebook and like people were posting pictures of us together on Facebook and my mom like made a comment to me on the phone she was like so I see you're on Facebook and you're hanging out with all these gay boys but I don't know why aren't you hanging out with straight boys at college and I was like I don't know so yeah it, um it never it really honestly didn't get until I was like 25 I think when my mom was able to like except that I was queer. So it took like seven years of just like not bringing up and not talking about it and just like dealing with like slide comments. Yeah. You mentioned there being like, I don't want to say warning signs, but you know, signs of something when you were young. Mm -hmm. uh, can you go into that? Um, I remember, uh, like, I mean, first of all, like, first of all, um, I identify as, like, transmasculine, but I also, like, identify as, like, butch. Um, like, I still, like, I don't quite see myself as a woman, but I still, like, very much, like, identify myself within lesbianism, even though I have, like, started medically transitioning and gone through those steps. But I remember when I was, like, five, my dad was like brushing my hair or like we were in the bathroom doing something like getting ready for bed and I like was like wondering I asked my dad like oh what happens if like two if like a kid has two mommies instead of like a mom and a dad and I kind of like imagine like the two mommies being like someone who's like more masculine looking woman and someone who's like a more feminine looking woman I asked my dad what do you call it if you have two mommies and that was one thing um and then, like, also in elementary school, I used to, like, sneak into my brother's closets and put on their boy clothes and, like, kind of play in my room or in their clothes by myself. But um, my mom, like, wouldn't, my mom always dressed me up, like, super girly um, all throughout elementary school. I really never had any autonomy over the way I dressed or looked. Um, and then I think, like, in fifth or sixth grade, I was in choir. And the girl that sat next to me, I had a crush on her. I didn't know I had a crush on her, but I had a little tape recorder and I recorded her voice in choir so I could go home and listen to her voice. <laughs> yeah. And then I asked my neighbor, I think like that same year, I asked my neighbor if she ever thought about kissing girls. And then I like leaned in and I kissed her and then she like screamed and I ran away. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I, you know, it was pretty deep in the closet after that. So did you see gay people growing up? No, never. Uh -huh. um, cause I never, cause I grew up in like a pretty small town, Port Dodge is like, um, you know, it wasn't a farming town, but it's still, you know, like a post-industrial manufacturing town. Um, it's not really part of like the suburban sprawl of Des Moines. It's just, you know, there's Port Dodge and it has Hy-Vee and Walmart and Target and like a population of like 20,000 so people and just farmland. And um, 
we never traveled. We didn't really travel much when I was a kid. Um, so I never like actually got to see gay people in real life. I think the first time I, I would only see gay people on the media. Um, and it mostly, you know, was still pretty negative how gay people were portrayed in the media when I was younger. Um, and so that really internalized a lot for me, especially with like having a masculine gender identity. I just like remember when I was younger, like representation of like butch women in mainstream media was very negative. Um, they were all definitely portrayed to be like very abject and grotesque and not something that was positive at all. I think like the only time when I was younger that I saw gay people in the media that was like positive representation was uh, the first iteration of Queer Eye. Um, yeah. But I never ever saw gay people, queer people at all um, in person when I was when I was a kid. Never. But there was like when I was in high school, I had like a voice teacher who was like gay, but it was like if there were people in our community that were gay, it wasn't talked it wasn't talked about. It wasn't, you know, they weren't open about it at all. Do you have any favorite places or memories of Fort Dodge? No. I hate that place so much. I, um, yeah, no. I, I, if I never had to go back to the town I grew up in ever again, I would be very happy. Um, like, the best things about my childhood was being able to play The Sims. Because I could play The Sims and just, you know, have a life that wasn't the life I had. And yeah, I really hate Fort Dodge, Iowa. When you played The Sims, did you play as a man or a woman? I would, hmm. I, I only like say that because I would always play as a man. Really? I think my protagonist was always a woman. Um, and I do remember making gay sims. And like, I remember when I was in fourth grade, I made like these two gay men and I made their house like very like kitsch and camp and flamboyant. And like, I would like have them have like the woohoo bed in the front yard. And, but then like I would make gay sims, but I would just like torture them and kill them like in the end. Cause like, you know, I felt ashamed of it. And then I remember like the first time I made like queer Sims, I made like a lesbian couple, I think probably in like sixth or seventh grade. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna let them be happy this time and I'm not gonna kill them. And that was like a big like strike point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, how did you kill your Sims? Drowning, fire, starvation. It was fun when the Sims 2 came out because there were way more creative ways to kill your Sims. I, yeah, The Sims 2 was like, I think The Sims 2 was like one of the best, it's probably, I don't know. The Sims 2 has its own great, iter like great qualities out of the Sims franchise because it was like the campiest one. It was just like the more over the top. Like your Sim, like if your Sim had too many dirty dishes, they could die from like a mob of flies that would eat them alive. Or like if they could like stargaze and get like crushed by a satellite. Just like weird ways to die. But there's always yeah. to take take the ladder out of the pool. It's like the big thing. <laughs> I remember you could 
play a fiddle challenge with the devil or the Grim I, Reaper. I don't to, know that one. If your sim, sometimes when your sim was dying, you could stop their death by uh, performing a particularly beautiful song to the Grim Reaper. Um, That's hilarious. But, Did you I still play The Sims? Really? <laughs> Occasionally. I've like the beginning of quarantine for COVID. Like my first reaction was to play The Sims because I think I played. Now I play The Sims in like really deep, depressing moments. <laughs> so yeah. Were you online in other ways or using the computer when you were a kid? Yeah, I. Um, I remember I was on this like children's chat room education site called Wyville um and I used this website called and I was on Neopets um and I was always on MSN Messenger with my cousin and then like when I became when I got into like middle school like seventh eighth grade I started going on like the I went on the Teen Vogue forums because okay I started the end of seventh grade I like was not popular. I didn't have any friends. Middle school was awful for me. And I was at my grandma's house. Um, and we didn't have cable at my parents' house, but my grandparents had cable. And I was watching MTV and then The Hills comes on um, with Lauren Conrad. And she's talking about her teen, her in internship at Teen Vogue. And so I was like, okay. And so my grandma went to the grocery store and I had her buy me a copy of Teen Vogue. And then I decided maybe I can make people like me by being cute and pretty. And so then in middle school, I started going on the Teen Vogue forum. Um, and then, you know, like Tumblr wasn't pop, like Tumblr wasn't a popular thing when I was in high school. Um, there, I like, there weren't any like really like positive like online spaces that I remember when I was a teenager. Um, that were affirming for me at all. Um, it wasn't until I started Tumblr in college that there was like more queer spaces um, that I could see online. And online life became like more of a habit for me or like a part of my life. What kind of queer community was there on Tumblr at that time? Um, I don't like remember. I, it's like so wild because like my conception of like queer life when I was like in a college is wildly different from what it is for me now. Um, yeah, I just like, hmm. Like, I just like remember like very like basic, like second wavy, like third wavy, like queer feminism, like nothing too radical. Um, yeah, it was just like very like wildly different from like the queer like circles and communities I interact with now. Um, and there also like wasn't much of like a queer community space um, that was like very affirming or that I felt that I could like um, fit in with when I was in college either, yeah. Do you remember first becoming aware of gender? Um, I so okay, so actually there was like this Tumblr website, there's Tumblr page 
called Lesbians Who Look Like Lesbians. And I remember I followed it and people just like would post like cute selfies to get followers. But it wasn't like ever like thirst trap selfies, like lesbians on TikTok now, like <laughs> thirst trap lesbians. <laughs> it was like, it was like kind of different. But I remember I was on that website, that Tumblr page called Lesbians That Look Like Lesbians. And then they would have like tags on it. And then I saw one that was like FTM and I've never heard of that before. And I remember I clicked on it and I was like, I don't know what that is. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's weird. That's interesting. And that kind of just like sparked something in me. Um, but I never was like, I never really had the confidence um, within myself or like support from anyone around me to like, kind of be a little bit more open with gender when I was in my early 20s and in college. It wasn't until, like, I remember when I was in college, um, I, like, I definitely knew I was very different in terms of gender. I knew I was, like, very uncomfortable, like, with, like, a feminine gender pre presentation. I, I, like, kind of saw myself wanting to have I, I knew myself to have a more masculine energy within me, but I didn't feel comfortable with it. Um, and I really suppressed it. And it wasn't until I moved to New York that I was able to kind of open that up within myself um, and kind of like express some more authentic representation of myself. Um, yeah. How did you do that? How did you open up with that side of yourself? I think part of it was um, I moved to New York alone. I kind of just, I was really depressed um, when I was, I, I stayed in Iowa City for two years after graduation and I like lived with like one of my high school friends and I worked at like some coffee shops. I worked at a grocery store. I did babysitting. Um, I was like super depressed. I didn't have a lot of friends. Like I was very socially anxious. Um, I had a lot of stuff to work on, um, like a lot of trauma to like unpack from when I was younger that I wasn't able to work on. Um, I had undiagnosed ADHD that I wasn't diagnosed until I was 23. Um, but I think like my last year in Iowa, I bought a binder for the first time. So like my last year in Iowa, I bought, a, I was wearing a binder every day. And then I moved to New York and I still had like a lot of guilt and shame um, attached to like the masculine part of me that was inside of me. And I think like a big part of it was just um, being alone and not having anyone not knowing anyone, not have anyone tied from my past, like anyone from my past around me, like just like being completely detached from like the issues and the trauma of like growing up and being a young adult in such like a secluded and like isolating place was just like a part of me where I was like, I can do this, I can be whoever I am and people can see me and they're not gonna remember me and like that's a great thing about New York is that you like do whatever the fuck you want and no one's going to give a shit because they're so busy with their own lives and they're probably never going to see you again and if they do they don't remember you and so I just started doing that and then also it was just like 
um, being able to be in like sexual relationships when I was in New York. Um, I wasn't really able to explore like my sexuality when I was in college and when I was still in Iowa at all. And being able to explore my sexuality in New York and like having like very gratifying sexual experiences was like another thing to just like kind of root me and like justify me within my like difference of gender. Can you talk me through some of those experiences? Uh, can you be more specific? Do you have a particular memory of a sexual experience that felt uh, revelatory, gratifying? Uh, probably just like the first person I like kind of like hooked up with in New York City. Um, like I had a few times, I like tried having like sex a few times times when I was in college and like nothing really came of it it wasn't like anything too exciting I didn't really enjoy it like I remember thinking that maybe I was asexual because I didn't enjoy sex um and I think it was just like when I came to New York and I like started having like a sexual like my first my like first two sexual relationships um were pretty drawn out like they weren't anything like romantically involved they weren't ever some sort of big romantic ordeal, but like we were having sex a lot. And in both of those relationships, I was just a top and I was like, oh, I'm a stone butch. And then I started using a strap on and yeah. And then I was like, okay, this is how I enjoy sex. And like, that's like desirable. Like other people desire that in sexual partners and it's okay to be that way. And it's okay to do that because like I knew when I was younger, I kind of like thought that would be the kind of like role I would take on in sex. But I, again, I wasn't comfortable with myself. And so I didn't really try to pursue it. But also like, I feel like it's not too common in like younger people to um, explore that too much. I think like when you get older, you kind of have like a more idea of like sexual roles and positions and like dynamics that maybe when you're in your early 20s aren't quite a thing yet because people are still developing their own ideas about themselves. Who is, or who is the first sexual relationship that you had in New York? Um, I don't really want to talk about, like I don't really need to like, like we're still friends, like she and I are friends um, and we have a friend group. So I'm gonna not really go there. Very fair. So you talked about buying a binder in Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you decide to do that? What was that like? I just like was sick of having breasts. And um, I remember I would like wear an ace binder at home just to like try it out. And then I just decided that I wanted to buy a real one. And so I went online and I bought one. And I bought one and I wore it every day for like two years. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was so gross. You also mentioned beginning a kind of medical transition. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that look like for you? Uh, so I turned 26 last April. I'm 28, 27 now. Um, I 
you know, when I started moving to New York and I started, you know, being able to explore gender more, I knew I wanted to have top surgery. And I was like kind of thinking about tea. It wasn't quite something, it was something I I was more reluctant towards. Um, And then, so back in like January of 2019, I made like my first like very, like very close, um, very intimate friendship with someone who was also trans, who was a trans man. and that, yeah, that friendship is so special to me. Um, but he, I think like last April, last March, he asked me if he, I would start trading him my Adderall for his excess testosterone. And so I was like, okay, sure. And so I took like two shots of his tiny dosage and I was like, okay, I'm actually going to go to the doctor to do this now. And so I made like an appointment at Cal and Lord and I started tea. Um, and then like last summer, you know, it was like the second that I turned 26 and I wasn't on my parents' insurance and I started taking, I was on Medicaid because I was in grad school, um, that I started medically transitioning. So last May I started T and I started like getting serious about top surgery. Um, and I had top surgery in December and that was like a pretty big moment for me because it was like always something that I wanted and it was something that I never thought I could do it was like something that I was afraid that my I was afraid my family would disown me if I did that um it was something that I never thought I would be able to afford but I was able to afford because I live in the wonderful state of New York and I was able to figure out the system and get on the insurance and like get everything in order to get the surgery done at the right time. Like I got it done like two weeks after finals of fall semester, like two days after finals of fall semester. So I had all of winter break to like um, heal. And then like another big part of it was that, you know, for a while in my life, um, I didn't think like people really cared about me. Um, I didn't think that there was like any value in myself. And so I never like thought I would take the route of doing um, like a fundraiser that a lot of people do. Cause I never, I'm not like back then I wasn't very outgoing. I didn't really have much of a community. And I like, I also just like really internalized shit from when I was younger thinking that like no one cared about me or wanted to be my friend or saw value in me. And so I never thought I would get top surgery cause I never thought that anybody would care enough about me to like help me with recovery. And so, but I was able to do it. And that was like a great, like really like a really great moment in my life of like understanding like the emotional um, development that I've come to of like everything that I've worked through on my own of really just like unlearning and like processing like trauma and pain. Yeah, cool. Who helped you with the recovery? Um, so I actually, um, I was dating someone who um, had top surgery and they were like there with me when I was like planning the top surgery. Um, and then they broke up with me and it was really upsetting. Um, they also said some really hurtful things to me um when they broke up with me that was very intentional to like get at 
the negative things that I felt about myself. Like I was very vulnerable with them and they exploited that. Um, so when they um, broke up with me, I called my aunt crying and I asked her, cause it like really triggered that like, uh, that insecurity in myself thinking that no one cares about me. Um, yeah, just like thinking that I wasn't valuable to others to be cared about. Um, so I called my aunt crying, asking her if she would come visit me, like come with me to help me with my surgery. Um, but then my mom told her not to do it. So there was a few months when my mom found out about the surgery, she didn't talk to me for three months. And she told my aunt not to come help me. Um, and then, so my ex and I got back together and then they broke up with me again. And so then I called my aunt crying and I was like, can you please come? And then I, I called my mom and I cried to my mom and I was like, please can Nancy come? And so my aunt came. Um, yeah, so my aunt was there for like two days and then I just like had my friends come in and check on me. But again, I didn't really want to ask too much from people. I didn't want to be much of a burden. So I honestly like didn't really rely on people too much after my aunt left. Like I remember like three days after my surgery, I did my laundry and then I regretted that. <laughs> yeah. What's your relationship like with your aunt? Uh, really close. Cause like my mom wasn't very emotional. Like my mom really can't provide emotionally for me when I was younger. And so my aunt was like definitely that for me. And so, yeah, my, my aunt is kind of like a second mother to me. Um, and she grew up in, she lived in Cedar Rapids. So when I was in Iowa city, I would always see her all the time. Um, and I am definitely much more open about my life with her than I am my own mother. She's your mom's sister? Uh, she's my dad's sister. But another part of re reason I think why my mom didn't want my aunt to come was because my father is currently not speaking to his sisters. So that was another strain. Yeah. Can you, do you want to talk about that? Uh, he's not speaking to my sis his sisters because um, with issues um, with my grandma's will. Yeah. So, and uh, also, yeah, there was like a lot of stuff with that, of a lot of uh, triggering violence came up with that during that process. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, did you crowdfund? part of your top surgery payment? Nope. Okay. Nope. I got it completely covered by Medicaid. Um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was lucky. And, you know, I was also, you know, I was also like really fortunate because I never thought I'd be able to afford it. I also never thought I could afford to take time off work. Like I never thought top surgery could be a surge, like a possibility for me, but I got it completely covered by Medicaid. Um, and I, got it done in December while I was in graduate school. So I wasn't missing work and my cost of living was just, you know, uh, factored in when I took out my student loans and my graduate assistantship. So I really didn't have, I didn't have to crowdfund anything for it. 
which I'm like pretty fortunate that that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like uh, living in New York and getting New York Medicaid is probably like the best thing to ever happen to me because it gave me the resources to transition. Like the insurance I had before I had Blue Cross Blue Shield of Iowa, which doesn't re like cover anything for transgender services as far as I'm aware. Um, and also I was able to start therapy, um, like really start therapy with Medicaid because um, before I was, my insurance uh, copay for therapy was $40. And before I started grad school, I was so broke that I could not afford $40 copay um, for insurance for um, therapy. So uh, Medicaid is like the greatest blessing for me. Um, it really helped me become a healthy person in every way. And I'm just like, so grateful that I'm like so privileged to live in New York and where I'm able to get like access to health resources that I haven't had otherwise. But like that comes to privilege too of like being able to access Medicaid in New York because I know other people aren't able to get it easily. Um, but you know, it was really something that I really dedicated a lot of time to was just to figure out the system it was like a big drain in my life last year. Yeah. I'm curious if there was like a point where it went from being something that was unrealistic or impossible to possible and, and happening. Um, I think it was just like getting Medicaid and also um, going to therapy, like dedicating myself to therapy um, and really like pushing my comfort zone and really working on myself and working on having friends and building confidence and self-esteem in a way that I never had before was a way where it became possible for me. Can you talk to me more about the trans man friend that you have? That yeah, so he, um, so my first sexual relationship in New York, whose name I will not divulge, um, he happened to be her best friend from college, the college that they both dropped out of. Um, they went to like a really elite private arts college, a private liberal arts college that's no longer open or functioning or existent anymore. Um, yeah, but so she was like best friends with him and like when we were sleeping together, like during the, uh, she didn't really like integrate me into her life at all, but she like always talked about him in like a really interesting way. And I was like very um, like intrigued by who he was because like um, his parents are both artists and he like grew up in Tribeca and he like came out as trans when he was like a teenager. Like he started hormones and like had surgery when he was like 16 um he was like in like docu like some documentaries about like trans teenagers and health and so we started hanging out um so the girl my my former like sexual partner and I we started just like hanging out as friends and then 
well, you know, I started going to bars with them and then my, um, the, the trans man friend, he and I started like clicking. Um, and so before I went to grad school, I was working as an art handler for a shipping company. And so he was like being a gallery assistant for someone who was doing a show um, in, in New York City and they needed to deinstall the show and take it back to New Haven. And so he asked me if I would help him. And so like that day we deinstalled the show and we like drove a U-Haul truck together up to New Haven. And his mom lives right, right outside of New Haven. So we like drove up the entire time just like talking. And then we went to his mom's house. So we stayed up all night just like talking. And then we spent the next day like helping this artist like do work in her studio just talking and then like we took the train back to the city and we just like talked and then we got back to Grand Central at like midnight and he was like let's go get a beer and then we just kept talking and then we like walked from like Midtown all the way up to his apartment and like around like 96th Street talking and we like got into his apartment and his boyfriend was there and we just like went in the hallway and we're like talking all night and then I realized that like I just spent like over 48 hours with him without showering or like changing my clothes, not even changing my underwear. And I just like had this like friendship with someone that was just like so quick where I felt like understood in a way that I never really felt with anybody before. It was just like such a quick, like such a quick and intense friendship. Um, and it was like the first friend I had that was like trans and like that was special. And he was like so intelligent and we had a lot of the same ideas and he had a life that I was like very interested in. And yeah, it's great. In fact, like when we became friends, it was like so intense that his boyfriend was like, are you guys going to start sleeping together? Like, I'm not quite sure what's going on. So, <laughs> but you know, his boyfriend and I are also like really good friends and yeah, it was just like amazing to have a friendship with someone like for the first time. Cause I always like, wanted to be friends with someone who is a trans man or like trans masculine and I never had that and I finally like became friends with someone who like understood me and like felt me in that way and was also just like an intelligent and worldly person and like that wasn't all we talked about and it was like awesome it was like amazing to felt like so seen by somebody it was so great yeah What was doing your first tee shot like? Um, he picked me up from school. I was like, I was like working my can't like my grad assistantship job. And I remember I, I like picked up some, some books from the library and he picked me up in his car and we drove to my apartment and he was like, okay, I want the Adderall. So I got out the Adderall and then he, <laughs> And then he was like, he had his like little bag of tea and then I like took the shot and I was like, okay. And I just like remember like the next day I was like, am I going to feel anything? Like I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, and I was just like creating things about like people like doing microdosing and like using to, like testosterone to transition in like a non-binary way. And it just like became like more and more pressure in myself. Like it just became like overwhelming and unbearable that I just like made an appointment at Callan Moore to start it like with a prescription. Yeah. Um. And it was really annoying because they made me go there to get my first shot the first three times. And I would like wait there for like two hours to see the like nurse. 
And I was like, so thankful that I started it during the summer when I wasn't in class and I wasn't, I didn't have a job. So like I had, it was like, whatever, I had time to kill. It was a pain in the ass. <laughs> Can we go back to the University of Iowa and talk about your friends from your first year? Yeah, I, um, I lived on the arts floor, um, which I shouldn't, like, honestly, I shouldn't have gone to the University of Iowa. It's like, I shouldn't have gone to the University of Iowa. It wasn't like the first, it wasn't like the best match for me. Like, it's definitely still like a state school and like a sporty college. And, but like, I remember like growing up in like such a small town and like being so sheltered. And like, I remember like when I was in third grade, my family drove our minivan to Washington, D.C. And that was like my first time in a big city. And I just like remember going to Washington, D.C. was like such a like big moment in my like childhood because like there were tall, there, well, there's not tall buildings in Washington, D.C. because nothing can be taller than the monument. But, you know, there was large buildings and there were people everywhere and there were blocks and blocks and blocks. And I never got to see that as a kid. Um, so like growing up in such like a small rural, like conservative town, like Fort Dodge, and then like moving to Iowa City. <laughs> it's just like so funny because like when I was like 18, I thought like Iowa City was like a cosmopolitan metropolis. Like <laughs> and um I was just like, wow. And there was like people that like were liberal. And like for me, that was like at the time, like so big. But now I look at Iowa City with like, ugh, it's liberal. Um, <laughs> and yeah, for me, it was like this like big experience. Like I thought Iowa City was a big city. Um, I was like kind of overwhelmed by it. And so I lived on the arts floor um, in my first year. I had friends like with, um, two other women who were like queer and like two other guys, two guys that were gay. And like, I was the art student. And then the, one of the girls was a dance student. And then the guys were like acting in opera performance. And we were just kind of like this little clique that hung out. Um, and then our, like, we didn't really stay together as a clique through college. By the time college was over, we kind of, um, like, kind of filtered off. Um, and I really don't have contact with any of them anymore all too much, um, unfortunately. But that's what happened. I actually got a message from the girl that I was friends with in college who I had a huge crush on they just told me that they're starting tea and I was like, wow, join the club. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but like, I guess like through college, um, like we kind of had like this like close click, like we were kind of, you know, just like very naive, like small town Iowa kids who weren't very worldly. Um, we were kind of like hippie-ish, like sophomore year, we got a house together. Well, I didn't live with them. I stayed in the dorms, but I was always there. But I lived there during the summer, but we lived in this like beat up old house that was just kind of like this like bohemian place. And you're always like listening to music and records and like 
smoked a lot of weed. We did like some psychedelics there, just like hanging out. Um, you know, I was like a vegetarian. I was kind of just like a college hippie in college. It was kind of weird. Definitely not like that now. Um, yeah, but like I was pretty depressed in college. Um, I mean, like other than that friend group, there wasn't much of like a queer community that I felt there weren't like any people who were like capital Q queer. There was just like definitely people who like were very like normative in like their lives and their values. Um, like there was like, I like went to like the LGBT club on campus and like the president, uh, like one of, at one point there was like one of the presidents of the club, like we had like drama together. And then he like said like, really derogatory things towards me for like kind of being butchy and it kind of made me feel bad about myself in that way and kind of pushed me back in the closet for like being masculine in my gender and like a bunch of like the women who are like lesbians are very like into sports and like we're from Chicago suburbs and like we're sporty and I wasn't really into that either so I didn't really have like the queer community space in college at all and I was pretty depressed throughout most of college, like very depressed. Um, I admitted myself to the psych ward twice throughout college and was pretty withdrawn from most things. Um, and the only way I able to, like I was able to graduate with college was that I was an art student. So I didn't have to write a lot of papers or study. So I just had to paint. <laughs> so, yeah. When did you see like capital Q queer people for the first time? When I went to Grinnell to visit my friend who went there, I was just like, wow. We went to like, um, one of my best friends from high school, um, we've also lost touch. Um, they went to Grinnell. And so when I was in high school, my college teacher, my, um, my high school teachers wanted me to apply to Grinnell, but my parents were like, that's not happening um because they didn't they were like afraid about the cost of it and so yeah so one of my friends from high school went to Grinnell and they drove down to Iowa City to pick me up in a car and in their car and um some conservative like Iowa politician had a rally there so we went to like a counter protest with like Grinnell students and then we went to like a Rocky Horror Picture Show um party at Grinnell and I was just like oh, these people are like cool. And then I made out with a girl for the first time there. And yeah, it was great um, seeing like capital Q people. But again, there wasn't much of that in Iowa City and I didn't get to go to Grinnell all too often. So yeah. What was the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Like, where was that? Uh, it was like in some auditorium in the middle of campus. I don't remember it but there was like a gymnasium in the same building because I remember like if like a year or two later, I went to a drag show in the same building in a gymnasium. How was drag show? Hmm? How was drag show? It was fun. I thought it was fun. Um, I don't remember it all too much. Like I used to go to like studio 13 um, in college and see the drag shows there. Um, but Grinnell was like something different. Because, like, I remember, like, Studio 13 was, like, all about, like, glam queens, and Grinnell was just, like, being weird. And it was kind of fun. 
what who'd you go to Studio 13 with? Um, my friends that I made my freshman year of college was who I went there with, um, the two boys. Um, I lost friendship with them. Uh, one of them started dating someone who was very controlling and abusive um, and kind of like forced him to end his friendships with everybody else. And that was when we were 20. And as far as I know, he's still with this man. Um, and it's really upsetting. And the last time I saw him, I was at a bar and I tried to go up to talk to him and his, his boyfriend, his abusive boyfriend, like said something derogatory to me and like grabbed my glasses off my face and threw them on the floor. Like very jealous, unhealthy, toxic person. Um, and I feel bad that he's in this relationship still, but like there's nothing to be done. Um, and then the other friend, the other guy friend, we, um, he's someone who like has a lot of shit to work through um, with his childhood and being gay in small town, Iowa. Um, he has a lot of trauma in his life that he's hasn't addressed and it has made for our friendship to be very like volatile, like very, like lots of like fighting and intense. And then we'll get back together. And then it just got to a point when I told him when I had my friends in, in New York city and he was starting drama with me again, it just got to a point where I told him I can't deal with this anymore. So yeah, it's like sad for like, it's like really sad that people like come and go out of your life. Like I've had a lot of like people that I was like a really close with when I was younger and um, we just like are, you know, the people I was friends with younger just were not healthy at that time. And we don't know how to process or function as adults. And so those like friendships don't ever, you know, those friendship had to end eventually because we just like weren't emotionally matured and developed and it's like pretty sad, but it's life. Yeah. How did you decide to move to New York? I was like so sick of living in Iowa. I was just so sick of it. I was like crying all the time because I was depressed. And so I like needed to like get, figure a way to get the fuck out of it. And so um, like I had, a BFA in painting. So it's not like I had a degree that could get me a job anywhere else. <laughs> and so I like my, my professors would tell me, Oh, if you go, I'd ask them, what do I do after college? And they're like, you go to grad school. And I was like, okay. So, um, I started like preparing a portfolio to go to grad school. And I had like three schools that I wanted to go to. Um, and so my qualifications was, I wanted it to be on the East Coast. I wanted it to be in a large city. And I want the program to be something that I can apply with a painting portfolio and not have to stick to painting. Cause I know I didn't, I knew I didn't want to continue painting all the time. So I applied to three schools. I applied to um, Temple um, in Philadelphia and I applied to CUNY Hunter and I applied to Pratt Institute. And the only school I got into was Pratt Institute. I didn't want to pay for it. It was too expensive. So I was thinking about like alternatives of how to get out of Iowa for not going to, without going to grad school. So I got into like a summer program um, called the New York Arts Practicum. And the basis of it is 
um, it students, art students who aren't from like the New York City epicenter uh, or like other schools like outside of New York City, have them apply for this program. They would match you with a mentor artist and you spend two months there working with this artist and meet as a group and you guys just do like studio visits and site visits. And it's just kind of like this like thing to like give students of what it's like to be an artist in New York City and if it's like something that you wanna do. And so I did that program and I was like, well, I guess I'm in New York City, so I should stay here. I don't wanna go back to Iowa. There's like nowhere else for me to go. So I stayed there and I didn't have any friends there. Um, and I was very socially anxious. And so I like got jobs. I was like working at coffee shops and I kept getting fired from them because I am an Aries. Um, so yeah, I'm an Aries. So people, I would get fired because I would just get angry. And I was like babysitting. And then I realized, oh my God, I can't be in New York City without having any connections or any network. I like, I'm not, I'm not gonna go anywhere here. So I decided to go to Pratt. So I like got a job finally as an art handler for a shipping company that was interesting to say the least. And so then I went to grad school and so I'm at Pratt and I was excited because I was like, okay, I'll graduate from Pratt, I'll have my MFA. Um, I was really proud of the work I made like before like again, I used to have like really low self-esteem and I never thought I could like, as an artist, I would like be good or like make anything valuable. But now I don't feel that way at all. I'm pretty like happy about the work I have. I think it's really strong and I do think I have a lot of potential. So I was excited to graduate from my, um, with my MFA, go out in the world with my portfolio, do residencies, get work, but then COVID happened, so. Now I feel like I'm back at square one, but it's okay. Um, yeah. Are there any kind of residency programs that are still open or? So I was going to apply for two summer programs that were both closed. Um, and I'm like applying for like a mentorship fellowship program um, called the Queer Art Mentorship. That's due in like a week or so. It's like another thing for me, but I think like honestly right now dealing with COVID, like one, I feel like there's too much going on in the world that like being so like solely focused on like my career as an artist just like feels like ungodly. Like I can't imagine just like going to my studio and making my like shit and just like not paying attention to everything that's going around in the world right now. Um, and then too, just like dealing with this economy, I think like my biggest thing is just like basic economic survival. So right now it's just, you know, trying to find work and make art when I can, but you know, I'm not in a rush to become a big major artist. And I don't know if being a big major artist is even an option anymore, so it's fine. <laughs> what work are you most proud of? that you did at Pratt? Um, I'm really proud of my thesis work, but um, I haven't been able to finish my thesis project yet. So um, I, um, if you look at my name, there's my website. Um, 
I think my work is like pretty linear and how it's created from like the paintings I made in college and the paintings I made after college. Like I started making work like my senior year of college, I was like just so depressed um, and I wasn't functioning and I had like untreated ADHD. And sorry, I gotta close my, do you mind if I take a pause for a second to get some water? Absolutely, yeah. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, all right, so the art that I make. Um, so, so my senior year of college, I was just like struggling mentally and I was painting and I really didn't really have an idea of what to paint. I really didn't have a developed style. I didn't really like drawing like figuratively too much. I wasn't really that great at it. Um, and I just like thought about how I would like, I didn't have like any control over my body. And so I started making paintings where like I would build panels and I would like put paint. Sorry, one sec. Um, I would put paint in squeeze bottles and I would like water it down. And I would just like draw like, like microbiological motifs with the like watered down paint and the paint would like expand and I would just keep building the layers. And like the fact that I didn't have like absolute control over the paint, I kind of like thought it's like allegorical of how I didn't feel control over my body. Um, so that was how I was painting in college. And then like after college, I continued like drawing these motifs and painting these motifs, but I was just like using paintbrushes. Um, and then, so like after I moved to New York and before I went to grad school, like the year before grad school, I was reading a lot. Like all I did was like, I went to work and I read because I, I like didn't have any friends. I was like too anxious to like go out and like meet people on my own. And so I would just like walk around the city all the time and read books. And that's like what I did for fun. And so I was introduced to um, Cyborg Manifesto by Donna Haraway. I see you smile. I love Cyborg Manifesto so much. Um, and then at the same time, I also read um, Testa Junkie by Paul Preciado. And so, yeah, you should read that. It's oh, like, yeah. it's like, it's like, it's like a mix of like Cyborg Manifesto with like Foucault and like a hint of Judith Butler, but it's like, it's auto theory and it's like also sexy. And so like how it's written is like Paul Preciado, like administers like testosterone. Like he was like, uh, now he identifies as a trans man or whatever. I don't know. He's a trans masculine person. He was like experimenting with like um, testosterone, but like not as a means to transition, but like a way to like biohack the codes of the body. And that was like the first time that I like read stuff about like being trans and like transitioning in a way that like kind of like clicked with me because I never thought I was like a man trapped in a woman's body. I was just kind of like, this doesn't work. And so that was like the first time that I like saw recognition of transness that I kind of felt attuned to. Um, but yeah, so like he just like writes about how like gender is constructed like biologically. And so he writes about his like experiments with like testosterone and um like viagra and birth control and like pornography and how those are all coding gender and then he like writes it with cyborg theory um so you know i started reading that and that was kind of like a shift in how i thought about my work i was like thinking about like the cyborg body as a trans person and so 
I was like using like a lot of like digital influences and like trying to like um, kind of mix, you know, computer culture references with like my biological motifs. And I was like, I started grad school. And so I started painting, I was still painting. And I was, was like thinking about like the cyborg body, but I was like making abstract paintings. So it like never really got across anywhere. Like it was, they were just like abstract paintings of shapes and it never really, really got to cyborg. So then there's another book by Paul Preciado or it's like an essay, it's a manifesto called The Countersexual Manifesto. And so at the end of my first semester of grad school, Countersexual Manifesto was published in English. It's been out since like early 2000s. It was published in Spanish and French, but they finally translated it to English. And so I read it and it's like continuing talking about um, cyborg theory but about dildos. So he's like writing about like the dildos as a body. And he writes like, if like the phallus is the like construct and the vision and the idea of like a patriarchal society, then the um, dildo is a cyborgian other. And I was like, oh, that's genius. And so I was like, okay, obviously making these paintings isn't working. So what I need to do is I have to make these paintings into dildos. And so then I taught myself mold making and I started making um, plaster molds out of so I was painting and cast them with silicone. And then I like was still just like making them as objects to like hang in the, on the wall and it still wasn't doing anything. And I always like wanted like my work to like represent like the inside of the body. I just like want to be inside of a body and like think of like the body as like a cyborgian other. And just making the pieces wasn't the objects wasn't working but so like these silicone objects were like always like getting dirty and like collecting dust so i was washing them in like a bucket and i was like looking at the bucket with like the water and like the silicone objects like moving in it and i was like that looks like pretty gross and like intestinal and like very like carnal and bodily and i was like that's interesting so i got like a big 17 gallon tub from the hardware store and painted it green and I filled it with water and I put my iPhone in like a waterproof case and I put it underwater and I started just like putting my sculptures in and like playing around with them and then I started like playing with like um editing the video and then I would just like have these like video pieces of like the sculptures moving in water but you don't know what's going on but it looks like very like gross like it looks like something's gurgling in a stomach and then I would like cut the video with like I would like green screen different parts of my body so I would like have it dismembered with like actual parts of my body um so that was at the end of my first year of grad school and then over the summer I went to my friend's house the trans man his mom had like a pool so I took all my sculptures up to his house and I just like chilled in his pool underwater with my phone and had him like throw the sculptures in and I just like videoed like the sculptures moving in his pool and then I went back to school in the fall and I decided that I wanted to make the sculptures huge like before they were like this big but I decided to make them the size of an actual body so I made like the sculpture I made like plaster bolts that were like six feet tall by like four feet wide um, and I made like just like giant casts of these silicone objects that were like dildos and they were representing of the cyborgian other. And so then I made like an installation 
of the um, sculptures in a room and I had a projected video of like one of the sculptures floating through water. And then I made like a super delicate piece of like the same biological motif out of like iridescent reflective paper. And so it was like mixed in with like the silicone objects. And so when the light from the video was moving across it, like there was just like sparkles of light like dancing across the wall. And then I just like made a audio piece of it that was like very like gurgling and intestinal and like sexual and <clears throat> like very bodily and watery and sexy. And then like for my thesis project, I took the giant sculptures that I made for the installation and I got a few of my friends to, I like closed off a, spa a studio space. Um, one second, I need my water. Um, and so I, I got like J-Lube, which is like lube for like heavy fisting and it's super cheap. And I um, got like this giant like pile of sculptures of these silicone sculptures. And I got like three of my friends separately covered the sculptures with lube. My friends got naked. And then I just like videoed them like rolling around in the sculptures and playing with it and like picking up interesting moments. Um, and then I compiled the video in Adobe and I made a three channel video install with the pieces and I haven't been able to install it yet, <laughs> but I've been able to like see like mini installs and in, while I was working on it and it was like a really great piece and you know, my professors got, got really great feedback that it really got to my point and I wrote a great thesis paper about it. So yeah, but yeah, my work is online. I have a website. It's just first name, last name, one word, dot com. I've, I've checked it out. <coughs> really good. Huh? I, I've done my Googling. It's like your stuff <laughs> is like really cool. Yeah. Um, um, I currently have, I'm going to take it down soon. Um, if you go to my Vimeo link, there's the top three videos are my thesis project or like little snippets of my thesis project. Cool. Can you talk more about biohacking? So the thing is that like, that's like what I've been like so hyper-focused on for the past two years in like graduate school and making that my work and I was like I'm kind of like over it but like also at the same time it was like so important to me because I wanted transition and now that I finally like did the transition I'm kind of like over it and ready to move on but I don't know biohacking is just like this idea that there is no like you know, binary of truth. Um, and biohacking is just like hacking the codes of your body to make it like the best version of whatever it can be. And so like when Paul Preciado, like when he took testosterone, he wasn't trying to be a male. He was just like experimenting with the codes of his body to like exchange, like change the experiences. Yeah. So post biohacking phase, what does transness feel like to you or mean to you? I don't know. Like, it's still, like, a part of me, but I feel like during 
I was just like so focused on it during grad school because like I was going through transition and I was like making work about transitioning and that was all I could think about. But now I feel like there's just like other things that I can focus on and I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I feel like my transness isn't such a major point of my identity at this moment because I accomplished it and it's, it's I've done it and it's still a part of me and it was like a struggle to get to here and because of that I've like gone through that struggle it doesn't have to be as major precedent in my life um yeah I don't know post biohacking cyborg trans identity to me is just I don't know I'm the person I've wanted to be for a long time and I finally done it and I finally can like look in the mirror and like wake up in the morning and be happy about who I am. Um, and be excited about my life. And I mean, not so much anymore. I'm just like so overwhelmed by COVID and our uh, federal government <laughs> that I'm not so hopeful, but I guess like personally, I can just like wake up in the morning and be the authentic, like live authentically. And that's like fantastic. And to have friends who value me for being me and um, not being so worried about what other people think about me and yeah, just being like known as a valued person to myself and others and just be able to breathe and like live my life and go on. Um, and I never really, when I was younger, I never really thought that could ever happen. Yeah. You okay? You kind of touched. Oh, really? <laughs> what, I'm happy that I touched you. <laughs> We already talked about The Sims, but how else has your quarantine been? It's been awful. So I live in a two, oh my God. I don't know. I live in a two bedroom apartment. And so my roommate is one of my classmates, former classmates now. And she has a boyfriend who lives right, right outside the city. And so, when quarantine happened, she went to her boyfriend's house. And so I was in my apartment with myself and my cat for two months. And, uh, you know, I was too afraid to go see my friends. I, I felt like it was irresponsible to be with my friends. And I live in New York City, which is like, was for the longest time, the epicenter of coronavirus, which two days ago, there have... I think it was like yesterday or the day before there was recorded zero deaths for the first time since early March, which is amazing. Um, I just remember the beginning of quarantine, uh, alone, overwhelmed, hearing ambulance sirens nonstop, like anxious. I had, I, I had no human contact for like two months. Um, and I feel like it, like quarantine has really changed me 
completely. Like, I feel very emotionally withdrawn. And like now, like, I just feel very emotionally withdrawn and out of touch with everything. And it's fucking weird. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, for like your whole life to just be like suddenly disrupted. Like, I thought coronavirus was hysteria. Like, I remember three days before, I remember like a week before like lockdown, I like left the gym and cause like I was working out every day. And that's another thing about quarantine is that I couldn't work out. And that was like my, ther- like, that was like my thing was like, I would work out and I felt great. And then I couldn't work out. But I remember I left the gym and this girl passes me on the street and she's on her phone. And she was like, yeah, I heard it lingers on your clothes for two days. And I was like, what if like people are get like, I, I thought it was overblown. I thought it was out of proportion. And then I, so I think it was like on a Tuesday, I was working at my uh, job on campus. I was just like working as like a clerical assistant for like one of the departments. Um, and I overheard these two students say, it was like the week before spring break and these students say, oh, I heard that like the new school in NYU, they're doing an extra week of spring break to figure things out. And Pat's going to do that too. And I was like, that's stupid. And I like told my supervisor, I'm like, they're going to do like an extra week of spring break. Like, I don't want to miss classes that I pay for. I love going to class. And she was like, we're figuring things out. I was like, okay. And then I remember that night I was at my studio and I was working and I was like on Twitter and I was like reading things about coronavirus. And I was like, oh shit, like this is real. Like, holy fuck. Like I thought it was hysteria. And I was like, this is real shit. And I just like started panicking. I was like texting my friends, like thinking the city was like going to completely shut down. Like they were going to like close like off, you know, Port Authority. And like, I started panicking and then like things happen. And they tell us at school that like, they're going to do an extra week after spring break to figure things out. And then we have the weekend. And then it's like the Monday of spring break and I'm at my studio and we all get an email that campus will be closed um, for the foreseeable future, but like classes may resume in uh, person at some point during the semester. And I was kind of like, okay. And also like at the time we were like getting ready for our thesis shows. And so like our classmates and I, we were like talking, we were like, what are we doing? Like, we can't have our feet, like, we can't have, like, thesis receptions, like, they need to pause stuff, like, we can't do this, and so, like, we talked about it, and then it just, like, hits, and I'm in my apartment alone for two months, sirens all the time, cut off from all my friends, um, really fucked up in the head, and, like, unable to, like, like, it's all just, like, a blur to me, and traumatizing, it, like, traumatizing, but, I guess like New York city is doing way better than the rest of the country now. Um, I still feel very like emotionally out of touch. Um, but at the same time, I'm able to go see my friends. I'm not as afraid to go outside anymore. Like I am going outside to exercise. Um, I got on the trend. I started, okay. I started going on TikTok during quarantine I used to be very anti-TikTok. I'm very pro-TikTok now. Um, And I saw all those, like, cute girls on roller skates having fun. And I was like, that looks fun. And so I bought a pair of roller skates. So I've been, like, roller skating every day, which has been awesome. So that's, like, my new enjoyable thing with life in quarantine is roller skating every day. 
So yeah. Um, but yeah, quarantine has been awful and we're still trying to figure out what to do about our thesis because we never got to have our thesis shows. Um, and our school told us that our thesis shows are indefinitely are permanently canceled. And so we're going through drama because like originally our administration, um, department administration told us that we could have our shows in the fall. And we were like, that's great. And then last Monday they told us, no, you're not having your shows at all. So now we're like, uh, that's part of the curriculum. That's part of like the requirement to graduate. They graduated us without like having us like fulfill our graduation requirements. Also, we paid a lot of money for this. Also, like that's a core part of like going to an MFA program is having your thesis show. Like not even if like we, if we can't have like a public reception and like only us as students and our like faculty members can see it, I don't give a fuck. Like I just want like my classmates and my faculty members to see my show and I want to see each other's. And I also want to take pictures of my show from my portfolio, but apparently we're not supposed to do that, but I don't know. Quarantine sucked. And I'm completely changed from it. <laughs> yeah. Traumatizing. I did make a lot of bread though, but um, I stopped making bread because I realized I gained some weight that I didn't want to gain. And then I also was not able to keep the sourdough starter. It was too much mm -hmm. work for me. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about reopening? <sighs> Nervous. Uh -uh. Like I feel New York. I like I feel like New York can do it at some in some way. Um, like I feel like people can. I feel like people can and should go back to work in ways that are healthy. I feel like people can and should see their friends. But I get really nervous seeing people at bars that are like outdoor bars and restaurants. That makes me very nervous. Um, but like I participated like, so like the protests for Black Lives Matters and like the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, like the first two weeks I was going almost every day and like they were massive. Like one protest I went to was counted as 30,000 people. And that's been going on for like six weeks now and there hasn't been a spike in coronavirus cases in New York City. So I do feel hopeful about reopening because I do have trust in New York City and I do have trust in New Yorkers and I love New York and I want the city to thrive. Um, I have trust in the judgment and the ethics of New Yorkers. The rest of the country, no. Uh, I'm terrified seeing the graphs. Um, but I don't know, I also kind of like feel like kind of excited in a way to see what coronavirus, like the, the like fallout of this does to New York City. Um, because like, I don't know, I read like a lot of like history, like gay history and like punk history of New York in like the seventies and eighties. And like, maybe I romanticize it a little bit, but like the fact that it was like an afford, like it was like a cheap place and like artists and punks and weirdos and queers could just like live there was great, maybe I over-romanticize it, but I kind of have this like dream that all these people are leaving New York City and aren't coming back and it's gonna be an affordable place again. And it's gonna, you know, reverse cycle gentrification and it will be back to like 
a thriving diverse city instead of you know a homogenous whole of capitalism and suburban i don't know upper middle class uh you know values i don't know liberal ambitions yeah so yeah A long time ago, you talked about identifying as both like butch and trans mask. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak more to that? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like when I like read things about like queer history to like place myself with, um, I definitely like place myself within like the butch identity historically. Um, like reading like anthologies and also reading like Leslie Feinberg. Um, it's something that I feel connected to, but I also, you know, don't really see myself as a woman. And I feel like the butch identity has definitely shifted with like, as things change in culture and I am able to um, take things to like masculinize my body but I don't like identify myself with male masculinity. I still very much identify my masculinity within a queer construction. And so in that way, I just kind of, you know, intertwine my identity between trans masculine and butch because I have like no desire to fit in in the world as a man. I just want to like exist as being this gender non-conforming person, but saying gender non-conforming, still having a very masculine identity. But I don't know. At the same time, I put on bright pink roller skates every day and dance around to Madonna in the park. So maybe, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) What does like Leslie Feinberg mean to you? Um, So I remember when I was younger in college, and having a very negative association with like female masculinity um, that I internalized from the media when I was younger. I remember seeing Leslie Feinberg and feeling very disgusted and uncomfortable by it, by her. Um, Because that was just like what was coded in me when I was younger was like disgust from like someone who was like a bull dyke. And (laughs) I mean, I am a bull dyke now. And, you know, that disgust was because I knew that within myself and yeah just like having someone to like write about gender in a way that isn't like so like academic like her writing is very accessible um and also just like someone who had like a very difficult life but made it very fulfilling and fruitful is like a really special thing i also like have a like my also even though it's like not so much in terms of gender um in terms of queerness, like a really special figure for me is David Wanarovich. Um, oh, you should read David Wanarovich. His memoir, I tell everybody to read his memoir, Close to the Knives. Um, he was a very active artist and activist in the East Village in the 1980s. Um, he was a member of ACT UP. Um, he was a writer and an artist and he, Um, like grew up in a very abusive home in New Jersey. And then he moved in with his mom in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan, when he was like 
a young, like when he was a tween and he like wrote about being, um, being like a childhood hustler in Times Square and having sex with older men and being homeless and like dealing with like a, like a, such a difficult childhood, but then like also like his difficulties with being like homosexual as an adult and like the adversity that he faced and he was like and then like when AIDS started happening and like his adversity became even more present and he was so angry and he was so rightfully angry but he like wrote about his anger in such a productive way and such a powerful way that like I read his work and he was angry and I was like I used to really suppress my anger because like I grew up in like a very like there was a lot of, there was like violence growing up. So I really told myself I couldn't express anger and I couldn't feel anger. Um, and reading his writing and knowing his work was like, I can feel anger and the anger doesn't have to be destructive. Anger can be productive. And so, um, yeah, Deva Monarovic is like this great figure for me of just like being angry at the world and that's okay. And um, yeah. Actually, like, he did this project called, like, the Rimbaud series, where he was really, um, the, the French poet, Arthur Rimbaud, who he um, died at a very young age. He lived during the turn of the century in France. Um, but he was, like, this kind of figure for David Wanarovich that he felt like made space for him in the world as, like, an artist and a writer and a queer person. And so he did a series where he made a mask of Arthur Rimbaud and um, had his friends like contextualize Arthur Rimbaud in their daily lives in New York City in the 1980s. And so he, it was like this like project of like rethinking like queer kinship and lineage with like people that you don't have a connection to, um, like either through blood or through like actual interaction. Um, and I'm like kind of working on this project. I put it on the side, um, trying to tie myself to the lineage of um, David Wanarovich and Arthur Rimbaud by collecting objects to build a home with. Because like I came to this point in my life where um, I was visiting my parents like last winter and it was like really upsetting and triggering. And um, I was like kind of homeless at the time in New York. I like was living in like in a very, um, unsafe housing situation. And so I was like moving into this apartment that I'm in now. And I had this like really traumatic visit with my parents. And I was like moving into this apartment and I was like, I need to be really intentional about the space in this apartment and make it my home and my safety net. And so I was like getting object, I was like buying used furniture online. And I got this microwave from this one woman who's like, a very like she's like a famous like punk um musician um like a butch lesbian i'm not gonna name drop but like her friend her ex-girlfriend at the time did a reappropriation series of the david wanarovich rimboats project where they printed off the mask instead of Rimbaud, they printed off a face of David Wanarovich to wear as a mask and they contextualized David Wanarovich into their lives in like early 2000s. That was a really special project. But so I got a microwave from this artist's girlfriend at the time that she, they made the project. And so I was like, this is fucking cool. 
So I'm like doing a project where I'm like collecting home objects, like objects from my home from like older queer artists and like asking them to tell me about like when they felt settled in their lives and like if there were figures that like built that for them. So David Wanarovich is like another big thing for me. So, yeah. How has that developed under quarantine situation? Any... Um, I mean, I was supposed to finish this project at the end of the semester because it was like an actual school project, but I kept putting it off because like my anxiety would take over it. And then I was like so busy trying to finish my thesis paper and then quarantine or my thesis work and then quarantine happened and I couldn't fucking think. And I was like, I'm not going to like work on a project about like feeling belonging and feeling safe at home because like one of my first reactions to quarantine was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to serve. Like I always have like a panic like response, like, oh my God, the economy is collapsing. I have this apartment. I'm not going to be able to stay here. I'm going to like lose my apartment. I'm not going to find a job. Like I wasn't able to work on that project because like my just like anxiety and stress over COVID. Um, but now I like also like, I'm like reluctant to work on that project at the moment because right now making an art piece about being a sad white queer person just like seems really irrelevant and like amongst like the other political actions of, you know, black violence seems like I don't need to talk about being sad white and gay right now. <laughs> yeah, it seems irrelevant. You talked about uh, media depictions of butch women when you were growing up. Do you have any examples? I think like Family Guy was one of them. Like I don't really have any major examples on top of my mind. And like, it probably isn't always things that are like overt, but like on television, you know, in the early, in the nineties and the early two thousands, like butch women, gender non-conforming people were always just like a punchline. Um, and they were never taken seriously as like dynamic characters. And they, you know, whenever they were depicted, they were just kind of like, oh, that's a gross, ugly, fat lesbian or, that's a uh, effeminate man who's a little pussy, you know? Like, I like I don't know, how old are you? 20. You're 20. I'm just like amazed because like, we're only seven years apart, but I feel like Gen Z have like much better, well, and maybe I'm making assumptions, but I feel like Gen Z have like much better access of like, seeing queer people when they were younger and like having accessibility to queer spaces like through social media when they're younger and I think it's awesome and I like I think it's so cool that like that has changed so quickly I also love Gen Z I love TikTok I love Gen Z's like being radical on TikTok I think it's amazing <laughs> the fact what are your that like favorite TikToks okay did you see Claudia Conway I'm not on TikTok. Not so on TikTok. But okay, I think like Gen Z on TikTok is so cool that people like Claudia Conway, like who happens to be Kellyanne Conway's daughter, 
who, you know, is on the administration, who was like Trump's campaign manager and on his administration, the fact that her 15 year old daughter is like a radical anti-Trump pro Black Lives Matter socialist on TikTok and is making TikTok videos is amazing. The fact that like, like radical politics is like reaching the most like unsuspecting people is just awesome. And it, it makes me excited for, you know, what's to come. Um, and also it's just funny as hell. There's hilarious TikToks. I don't know. It's just absurd. I got the, I got the right algorithm for TikTok now. So. <laughs> when did you first start seeing changes in media representation for queer people? Um, I honestly, like, I don't, like, I guess, like, I remember Glee when I was a teenager that, I remember that was a thing, and that was, like, positive representation of, like, queer teens. Um, I think, like, a big part of it maybe isn't, like, media representation, but more so me seeking that representation in other ways. So instead of, like, looking at mass media is finding representation of queer people whose like histories aren't are erased and aren't on the forefront and like actually having access to people who have existed and like looking for it and searching for it instead of seeing what is in front of me and so that it being fine reading books like David Wanarovich's Close to the Knives and Stone Butch Blues is more so like seeking out the representation I needed like actively seeking it. How did you uh, get into queer history? Um, when I was in New York, when I moved to New York and I had no friends and I, um, I like, I was friends with someone who, um, I like met this girl on Tinder and I was like hanging out with her and she was really into David Wanarovich and I was like, oh, I need to start looking into him. And so I started reading his books and then I wrote, I read this other book called The Lonely City by Olivia Lang. Um, which was like an awesome book for me to read because I was so lonely and she just like, she wrote about moving to New York, like intending to move in with her boyfriend and he calls it off, but she moves anyways. And so she just like, is there alone? So to deal with it, she just like writes about loneliness and what it's like to be lonely. And in, when there's people all around you and then she just like dives into the archives and records of artists who dealt with loneliness in urban landscape. And so like one of the figures she wrote about was David Wanarovich. And so, yeah, from there, I just started like thinking about, I realized that I have, I like live in a space where people like me have like always existed and like have always had to go through tri like tribulations to come to triumphs. And that's like a really amazing feeling knowing that there's people like me who had to go through shit to like, have fruitful lives and they've existed in the city and the city has like given them the space to do that. And so from that, I just like want to read about the history of people who are queer and are artists and had to deal with shit and like don't live assimilationist lives and live like fruitful alternative lives. And that's like such a liberating thing to like realize.
what else is on your reading list? <sighs> uh, I have so many books because it's like hard for me to, um, it's hard for me to focus on books um, on reading the past years because I have ADHD. So I can never like get my full attention focus on it because I just like can so spread out. Um, I have a lot of books on like the history of video art and I have a lot of like gender theory books. So I don't really know if I want to read gender theory books right now. Um, I have a lot of like science fiction to read. I have like a lot of like books about like transgender representation. Like I want to read um, Trapdoor by Tourmaline. That's on my list. Right AJ now, has an essay in there. Oh, cool. Wait, who does? Uh, AJ. Oh, AJ. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I have like a bookshelf, which half of it are books that I have not read and I need to start. I just got a copy of 2001 Space Odyssey because that's one of my favorite books. I read it when I was like 23 and I want to reread it again because like I've also... Um, have been on like new wave spiritualists TikTok and they talk about like fifth dimension reality and the age of Aquarius being like a conscious shift out outside of the third dimension. And it's like very parallel to like the topics and the theories um, brought up in the Space Odyssey theory, um, Space Odyssey series. So I need to like reread it and get back into science fiction. Yeah. What's new age TikTok like? uh weird <laughs> it's like crazy they all talk about like astral projecting into like the astral realm with 10th dimensional figures uh 10th dimensional beings and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about but then also uh like all over tiktok they're talking about the cia hologram files have you heard about those no okay the cia hologram files are basically we live in a hologram and our beings aren't actual, our, our, we are spiritual energies that exist in a different realm that decide to inhabit our body for experiences. And then we, we pass our life and then we go back to the astral realm and we reflect back on, on what we've learned from this bodily experience and tie it with our prior bodily experiences. And apparently there's CIA shit that says this. So it's crazy. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know what to think of all of it it's a lot I don't fully comprehend it but it's interesting and it makes me really want to read more about it so how did you get diagnosed with ADHD I so I was so um I had so much trouble in college and I just, I don't know. So like ADHD is like very underdiagnosed in girls because like they always thought ADHD was like the hyperactive boy. But like the way that girls are socialized is that like girls are told that they're not supposed to act out and they have to be calm and collected. And so like girls who have ADHD don't act out and they feel like they have to really control themselves and keep themselves together. And so like a lot of psychologists today are saying like, the like figure the like model of adhd is no longer the hyperactive little boy it's like the young woman who goes to college and her life falls apart because she doesn't have structure anymore and that was completely me 
Um, and I, I had to go to the psych ward twice in college because I couldn't deal with it. It was so overwhelming. And I tried to go to student health services to tell them that I have ADHD because my dad and both my brothers have ADHD and I have all the signs of ADHD. And they tell me I don't have ADHD because I'm a girl and I'm just depressed. And so I'm like that, okay, fine. And so I finished college. I start going to therapy after college because I never did therapy during college because it was one more thing that I had to put on my plate that I couldn't deal with. So I started going to therapy. I went to my first therapist, nothing happened. Like it wasn't helping. I went to my second therapist, my second session. She says, I looked at your paperwork and you have all the signs of ADHD. So she had me go to a psychologist and they did like two hours of like oral exam and written exam. And then they had to like take it to a lab to get tested. And then the diagnosis came back like two months later and it said I had ADHD and I was 23. And then I started taking Ritalin and it felt like my life changed. And I don't take Ritalin every day. It's just like great to know I have ADHD because I use like other different approaches of like lifestyle management to deal with it. And it's awesome to have the proper diagnosis. So, yeah. What kind of um, lifestyle adaptations do you use to cope with ADHD? Okay, so when I focus, um, I have I put in like earplugs, and I put on my headphones, and then I use bine and bi. like binaural something. Okay, something by beats, but it it just like takes music that goes in and out of your right and left ear just to kind of like balance your left and right brain to get it to focus. Is one thing for ADHD. Um. I don't know. I felt like I, I haven't managed ADHD all too well the past two years because I have been so hyper-focused on my graduate work. Like ADHD is like when there's stuff that you want to do, you fucking do it. And that's all you do and you focus on it. But when there's stuff that you don't want to do, you just don't and you can't get to it. And so like I've been having an issue with my ADHD ever since quarantine, like not being productive because now I don't have spaces to go to like kind of compartmentalize like productivity and relaxation. Like my computer desk is right next to my bed. So I've like started like talking to like someone who's like an ADHD resourcer. And I spoke to her a few days ago for like an hour and I paid her like $40. So she came up with a bunch of resources for me, for me to go through and just to like check in with her for like more resources of like how to do like ADHD management. So. It's a constant process, but I don't know. A big thing about ADHD is just like finally having the diagnosis to like understand how your mind works and reading about it. Yeah. What feels most pressing or important in your life right now? Finding a job. (laughs) that's all. Uh, finding a job and getting a way to document my thesis work like the correct way. So yeah, finding a job. What are you looking forward to? What I look forward to? 
uh, that's like so weird now to think because I don't know what to look forward to. Um, one of my friends just moved out of the city and got a cabin upstate on a lake and I'm going to visit him next week. That's something to look forward to because I haven't left the city in a year. So I'm excited to see trees and water and go to sleep and hear cicadas. That's something to look forward to. Um, I don't know. It's hard to think what to look forward to when the life world is so uncertain. But I'm just like happy to be alive now. So that's great. So yeah. Do you like, do you feel comfortable wrapping up? Is there anything else you I don't really have anything else to think about. We've been talking for like two hours now. It's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> well, well, thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'll stop the recording.